0: If you would turn, please to Daniel chapter seven um, i'm really good at forgetting my Bible so i'm thankful for this Bible up here. Um, it's been a while so so tonight 's sermon starts in the middle of daniel chapter seven we're we're going to be looking at b- beginning in verse fifteen, um, but it's been so long since the last time I preached uh, i I actually uh ask for, for your patience, because I think that it would be good to read uh, all of chapter 7, uh, because the first half, of course, sets the context for what we're going to be talking about in the second half. So I'm going to go ahead and read, beginning with verse 1. So this is Daniel chapter 7, and this is God's holy word. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his, of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had 10 horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the ancient of days took his seat. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And now we begin in verse 15, tonight's sermon passage. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, And about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, There shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High." and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominions shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heavens shall be given to the people of the, most high, of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. This is the word of the Lord. So in the year 553 B.C., Daniel was probably in a little bit of a funk. For he'd seen the upside of the kings on earth. Nebuchadnezzar had started out arrogant and pompous like the rest of the kings on earth, but he eventually showed that he could humble himself before God. And so Daniel's experiences with Nebuchadnezzar may have led Daniel to a little bit of confidence in exile. Now Babylon may never be the nation of God's covenant people, but maybe, just maybe, it can be kind of a cushy-ish place for the man of God to work hard and live out his faith in peace. But now, Belshazzar has just taken over as regent of the city, and Belshazzar shows no such humility, and he never will. Now, Daniel had enjoyed a high position under Nebuchadnezzar, but he's going to be shunted aside under Belshazzar. And we, we see at Belshazzar's feast in chapter 5 that by the end of Belshazzar's reign, Daniel is almost forgotten. And so it turns out it's not such a good time to be a man of God in Babylon. And it's often this way in our lives too. You know, we get comfortable. We, we think that As Christians, perhaps, in these United States, maybe we should have it easy. Now, it's certainly true that God will hold all the leaders of this earth accountable for how they treated Christians as well as all the other people under their care. But can we really expect to have it easy? You know, Daniel's experience shows us that, no, we can't. And so the question is, how do we respond when we're faced with these problems with problems in our society that make it harder or more challenging to exercise our faith unhindered. As you know, Daniel is this book that's divided into two halves. The f- first half is all of these stories of what Daniel experiences along with his friends in their life in the court of Babylon and, uh, and, and the Medo Persian Empire. And then we change genres completely, and Daniel sees these apocalyptic visions in the second half. And what's happening is that God, in the second half of the book, is showing Daniel how his earthly experiences fit into the heavenly reality that's just beyond natural sight. Everything that Daniel experiences plays a part in what God is doing with cosmic history. And so Daniel's visions are showing him and the rest of us that God has everything under control, no matter what the present circumstances are, and that behind the scenes, up in the heavenly realms, God is working everything according to his glory and his purposes. But is Daniel, at least in chapter 7, encouraged by these visions? He's not. And in fact, we see that Daniel is made anxious and alarmed by what he sees. In the first half of the vision, Daniel has seen the spiritual reality behind earthly powers. He sees that it's beastly, violent, macabre. You know, spiritually, these human kings aren't even represented as human beings at all. They live as this circus show, a burlesque parody of of human rule in God's image. And and if you're not hip to the spiritual reality behind earthly rule, you should be. And you should be troubled by what you see too. And yet, Daniel doesn't just sit there and wallow in his troubles. For he has somewhere he can go and he can seek out answers. And so in the middle of this vision, Apparently, Daniel is lucid dreaming. In the middle of his vision, he asks one of those standing there, what's going on? He gets answers. The four beasts represent four kings who arise from the earth, which in the vision was represented by the sea, that agent of chaos. But, spoiler alert, God and his saints win in the end. God's saints receive the kingdom that has been given to this Son of Man who appears with the clouds. The saints don't establish the kingdom, but they receive it, and we receive it forever. And that's God's promise to you that whatever may be going on around you, whether the evil is visible to the naked eye or only to the spiritual eye, God's holy ones will be rescued and receive the kingdom that Jesus has won. But first, the oppressors will appear poised for victory. And so tonight, we, we look at the passage in these two unique events that, that are added to the story of what Daniel is seeing. So first, we see the seeming victory of the little horn, the oppressor. But second, we see the vindication given to God by his holy ones. So Daniel has his answer from the one standing there. The four beasts are four kings who arise out of the earth. But a question burns within him. What's the deal with the fourth beast? What's the deal with the ten horns and the small horn? Look, the first three beasts are scary, but they don't provoke Daniel the way that the fourth beast does. So why the fixation on this fourth beast? Well, The answer is given to us right there. The fourth beast is exceedingly terrifying. The fourth beast makes the first three seem so tame. They seem like they belong in a, a children's cartoon. But the fourth beast belongs in a Quentin Tarantino film. For this fourth beast is gratuitous in its violence It has teeth of iron and claws of bronze. It devours, it breaks in pieces. It stamps with its feet what's left. It devours the whole earth, it says in verse 23. And scholars might, you know, there's a debate about the identity of the fourth beast. I think between its universal reign and the efficiency of its violence, that the Roman Empire is the most likely candidate for this beast. And and I think that looking at World rulers both by natural and spiritual sight and seeing the contrast, I think it's worth it to see how we think of the Roman Empire and how it's portrayed here. For we all know that Rome was incapable of incredible artwork, uh, an impressively efficient bureaucracy, works of architecture that stand to this day. You think of the remains of a city like Ephesus and how it's laid out, and how so much of it stands even now. Or you think about the Colosseum. And yet even a magnificent building like the Colosseum has its dark side, doesn't it? A place where so many early Christians were martyred for sport, for entertainment. And so you see why a magnificent empire can be shown to Daniel here as truly grotesque. And though we read that this beast was put to death at the judgment of the ancient of days, yet its spirit lives on through its ten horns. And I don't, I don't believe that the ten horns have ten specific real-world uh, reference the way that each beast does. And the reason is this: not, not much detail is provided about these ten horns. There aren't really any other defining characteristics by which we might identify the ten horns. And, and this is a good rule of thumb when you're looking at apocalyptic literature, if you're, if you're trying to decide whether maybe there's a specific real-world referent for a symbol. Um, the more details are given, the more likely you can come to a tentative conclusion about who it might be. And for the horns, they're ten in number. They arise out of the fourth beast Ten's typically a symbolic number in apocalyptic literature anyway, so I, we're looking here at a symbol of completeness rather than like a cardinal number 10, meaning 10 countries in the world. And so the 10 horns are really representing a new stage in the history of the fourth beast, the, the nations that you could call the spiritual successors of the Roman Empire. And yet just as they're more numerous than the one beast, their carnage is also more widespread. And don't imagine that it's only the rulers of these these beasts and these horns that are portrayed as wicked. For a king is nobody without a kingdom. And the king stands in for all his subjects. And so it's not just... The, the ruler. It's not just his government and his official bureaucracy, but it's the whole society that is rotten to the core. And here, looking at the Ten Horns and looking at this sort of community of spiritual successors to the Roman Empire, you know, we, that, that puts us squarely in the middle of that and yet we can see with our eyes so many wonderful accomplishments made by all kinds of nations throughout history for god's common grace enables all kinds of good things to be done by all kinds of people you know think of even of the computer technology that helps us stay connected with each other during a pandemic or think of the fact that i'm sitting here i wrote this sermon using such a piece of technology I was I wrote this sermon listening to Emerson Lake and Palmer on a smart speaker. But these technologies are also used to bully and harass people. To expose our hard attitudes that leads to all kinds of bad consequences. Intellectual bubbles, our inability to speak to one another across differences, an attitude that uh, it's more important to cancel people or to own the libs or whatever than it is to actually engage with one another and show love for one another. Or think about all the other marvelous things that simply distract us from God, all the, the movies, all the entertainment, all uh, the therapeutic uh, treatments that are available that distract us from God in addition to whatever good effects they have or think about all the good things in popular culture that tells you to follow your heart. Never mind the fact that the heart is deceitful above all things. And so whether there's overt opposition to God, or distraction from him, or simply encouragement to indulge the worst of ourselves, all these rulers and societies in the Ten Horns are revealed to be destructive. Destructive so with your two eyes they may be very attractive but when you live within these societies on their terms they will destroy you they'll make you a spiritual beast just like the ones daniel sees in his vision but as bad as all this is you ain't seen nothing yet for it gets worse for as history comes to its close Another eleventh horn will sprout up, and this one will be worse than all that has come before it. It's going to throw its punches at the rest of the world. It subdues three kings. But there are three other things that stand out about this little horn. It's blasphemy, it's self-deification, and it's persecution against the saints. And so first, the little horn blasphemes God. It insults and belittles God. It says in verse 25, he shall speak words against the Most High. The clearest description of blasphemy we have is in Matthew 12, 28, where Jesus says, one cannot be forgiven blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And in context, Jesus is responding to Pharisees who say that Jesus' healing works come from the devil, not from the Holy Spirit. And so we see that blasphemy is is calling the works of God and calling God himself evil. And so this little horn will call the judge of the earth unjust. He will mock God's power. He will call God evil. Second, the little horn proclaims itself to be God. For this phrase that it says that the little horn will think to change the times and the law... We can understand this in terms of Daniel 2.21, where Daniel says that God changes times and seasons. So God alone has time in his hands and has the events of time in his hands. And we recognize that God alone is the supreme lawgiver, the one who al- alone whose justice is the source of all true justice on earth. And so this little horn claims power and prerogatives that only God has. But third, and probably the most significant um, part of the uh, narrative structure of this passage is that the little horn will war against the saints and prevail against them. For we've seen in, throughout history the church is persecuted from time to time and in different places, and yet somehow the church often thrives under persecution. You know, to, even to this day, we can see in places like China where, despite official persecution, the church is still, as far as we can see, growing, and more people are coming to faith in Christ every day. But there's also persecution that that knocks down the church. And so an example is in the 17th century when Christianity was well on its way to becoming. A major religion in Japan. But in 1635, Shogun Tokugawa Yamitsu imposed the Sakoru Edict, which banned Christianity, imprisoned missionaries, punished Christians, and gave rewards to those who turned Christians in. And so today, almost 400 years later, only about one, one and a half percent of Japan's population professes Christianity. And so the situation of the church in places that we think of today, like India, China, North Korea, is just a little taste of what the whole church has waiting for it sometime in the future. But the Little Horn's efforts are destined to fail. And it's going to fail when you least expect it. Now some interpreters, as you might know, understand this reference to the time, times, and half a time Referring to one year plus two years plus half a year. Um, but I don't I don't think that's the meaning here. Cause there are other places in biblical apocalyptic literature that refer to three and a half years specifically or to 1260 days. But these cases all give explicit reference to the exact time period. Um, but here it's just it's this indefinite time, times, and half a time. Uh, and not only that, you, you know, in English we have singular nouns and plural nouns, right? But in uh, Aramaic, this, and this part of the Bible is written in Aramaic, there's also the dual for, for things of which there are two. And, and this times is written in the plural. It's not necessarily indicating two. So a singular, a plural, and then a half. And so this phrase is talking about how the horn will rain for a little while, then a longer while. And then when you think that the the horn's going to rain for an even longer while, suddenly it'll be cut off, as if halfway through. For God will suddenly break in and intervene to stop this reign of terror. So let me ask you this. What are you looking for in this world to vindicate your faith? I have a lot of friends looking to things in this world to vindicate their faith. And, and we all do it, I think, to one degree or another. I, I saw it all over my newsfeed on Facebook a few weeks ago. Some of my Christian friends uh, wailing over the departure of the Trump administration and others welcoming the Biden administration like a, a king on a donkey entering Jerusalem. For to some, an end of a Christian era, and to others, the beginning of a Christian era. But whether you have one of these specific attitudes or not, we're all, in one way or another, looking for society to lend us a helping hand in living lives pleasing to God. But nothing in society, in this society, in any human society, Can deliver on any promise to vindicate your faith in Christ. History is full of examples where one society, one country, one nation made an effort to do so, and it frequently, if not always, ends up twisting and perverting that faith to pursue its own power and its own ends. And as our own confession of faith says, civil magistrates may not assume to themselves the administration of the word and the sacraments or the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The scriptures nowhere say that God gives these responsibilities to the government or to general society, but to the church. And so it's so tempting to look to the world around us for support and relief, but we're not going to find it. But there's another, a better place to turn, and it's staring us right in the face in Daniel's vision. For yes, the kingdoms of this world will promise to deliver you from the oppressor's victory. And yet that oppressor is going to emerge victorious. Or so it will seem. Because God will snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. And God will deliver his people. God will vindicate his people and deliver us to his eternal kingdom. And here's the beautiful thing. That kingdom is already in the hands of your deliverer. Remember, everything we're talking about tonight is still part of the vision we've talked about before. Daniel isn't here receiving a commentary on this vision after he wakes up from the vision. For everything that happens here is a part of the vision itself. So in verses 13 and 14, what do we see? The Son of Man receives his eternal kingdom before the little horn ever makes its war on the saints. Your kingdom is already safe in Jesus' hands. Daniel has witnessed Jesus' coronation after his ascension to heaven. And it's after that, after the kingdom is in Jesus' hands, that the persecution comes. But how did this happen? How did Jesus receive this kingdom? It's by his sacrifice for you. For it says in Hebrews, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And it says elsewhere in Hebrews that he entered once for all into the holy places by means of his own blood. And so not only does he receive his kingdom by this sacrifice and hold it in trust for you today, this is also how he makes you his saints. Now outside of the Psalms, the word saints doesn't appear very often in the Old Testament, and most of the time it does appear. It's here in Daniel chapter 7. We hear this word all the time, saints, the saints, but what does it mean? Well, it means holy ones. It's the same Hebrew word. The Hebrew word translated as holy when it's an adjective is translated as saints when it's a noun. Now God commands his people to be his holy ones, to be holy as he is holy. But only Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf can make that happen. And so when you receive his sacrifice by faith, when you trust him, that only he can make you holy. He makes you one of his holy ones. And you will receive the benefits that he's won for you. He will make sure you endure in faith to the end. I don't know if the little horn will rise up during your lifetime, but if he does, Jesus will keep you safe and he will deliver you. But there's something that really... Stood out to me about the way that the saints will be delivered. For the little horn puts down kings. The little horn makes war with the saints. And this report invokes military imagery. The little horn will win its victories with the might of an army and a police force behind it. Uh, We picture tanks rolling through the neighborhood where there might be Christians. Uh, Police officers battering it down doors gruesome public executions, blood running in the streets. Now, we don't know if this will be literally how it goes down, for the war may take other forms, but the picture of pressure and coercion in some form is the way the horn will win its victory. But while the horn will win with violence and oppression, God will win on very different terms. For it says, the court shall sit in judgment. The chaos of the battlefield will give way to the order and justice of a court proceeding in heaven. For God won't deal with the little horn on the basis of his superior power. God will deal with the little horn on the basis of his justice. Think about it this way when we, as a society, bring a war criminal to justice, we don't put him on another battlefield to be shot at by guns more powerful than his we put him on trial. Even in a human sense, we recognize that the right way to deal with war crimes is not more war, but justice. And so it will be at the final justice judgment when God renders that verdict on his enemies. God is going to work according to his justice, not according to might makes right. And so as a people who live in light of Jesus' promised return, it strikes me that we need to apply this fact rigorously to our conduct in this age. We need to think carefully about whether the way we treat people reflects God's mercy and justice. You know, it's well known that much of today's discourse has abandoned the idea of debate and persuasion and seeks simply to enforce its viewpoint on others cancel culture on the left, the drumbeat of threatened boycotts on the right, every other cultural movement on whatever dimension you like, I've seen has a strong share of cranky people demeaning their opponents, fighting fire with fire, declaring verbal war on the people that disagree with them. And we do this in the church too. We ignore what James writes. He says that do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, so that you may obtain a blessing. In every way, we're called to live according to the principles that God embodies when he opposes his enemies. And so in this age, he's patient. And when he springs into action, his course of action is not based on his enemies' principles, but on his so, the final judgment will be rendered on the basis of God's justice, not His superior force of arms. But He will show His power. He shows it in that the horn is simply ordered to appear in court, and there's nothing given, there's nothing that says that the horn has any power to resist or to return fire, as it were. And God's power will be shown in that the last judgment really will be the last judgment. For the saints will receive the kingdom and everything that's good in it. It says, The kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. It's as Jesus said in Matthew 28, isn't it? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. For God has the power at the right time to take it all. But he has picked out the right time and he is patiently waiting to pull the string. When he does, all that's good in this world will be all that's left. And it will all be given to his people as an eternal possession. But it will only come to us through severe trial. And so it's no wonder that Daniel ends by saying that he's greatly alarmed. For there is an awful trial awaiting the saints. And whether it comes in my day or your day or not, we would be right to be intimidated by this eventuality, for none of us has the strength to endure it. The visible church will be overcome, but God will overcome the oppressors. He will give his strength to his saints to endure, but only at the right time. I've got to confess to you, as as I've been studying this passage, I've been thinking, I'm not ready for this. Do you think that you're ready for this? But I know that if it comes in my time, God will make me ready. And God will make you ready. And in the meantime, God makes me and he makes you ready for whatever we face in this life, but it's his strength. It's not mine. And the beautiful thing is that God will give us his strength to face the trials of this world according to his principles, according to true godliness, not according to the world's principles, and so no matter when this trial comes, all you who have faith in Christ will be one of those saints. You will receive the kingdom that you did in turn. And you will be a citizen of that kingdom forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of the promise of your kingdom. And we thank you for your strength to endure until that kingdom uh, comes to us. And so, Father, whatever trial is coming down the pike this week, this month, and on to the rest of our lives, Father, we pray that you will teach us to rely on your strength and not ours. We pray that you would give us the attitude, as it says in 1 Corinthians 6, why not rather be wronged? Teach us to persevere according to your ways, not according to the ways of our opposition. Teach us to be holy as you are holy. And we rejoice, although we're probably a little intimidated, but we rejoice in the knowledge that your promise is sure and you will deliver us safe to the end. Amen.